Grab your Bibles. We'll be in the wonderful little book of Philippians this evening. And as you guys turn to Philippians chapter 1, I'm going to read you a very bold statement by this very same author who wrote the book of Philippians, the great apostle Paul. And he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. He says, but we have the mind of Christ. The audacity of the apostle Paul. Could it be true that Jesus Christ's perspectives, his mindset, what he framed his mind around, really his attitude, his attitudes are available to us. That's a, a very bold statement, bold but true. Attitudes, we need to recognize that attitudes and mental perspectives are important, amen? You heard that saying, attitudes are everything? Yeah, I, I believe that. Attitudes are everything. They're very important, you see, because our attitudes, uh, our mental perspective, our frame of mind, it really changes our reality, our reality, how we view our life circumstances. It's how we interpret. It's like a lens you put on that jades what you interpret happened. It's, it, it's, it's super important. For instance, if you came in here today and you had an attitude of, you know, God is giving me this time. He appointed us to be here together, whether you believe that or not. If you have an attitude, you say, you know, God brought me here tonight. And I'm going to trust by faith that he's going to show me something in his word or through worshiping him that and through his spirit, he can change. But you have that kind of attitude when you come to church. More times than not, you find that, don't you? You find something from the sermon, something in your time of worship that meets your needs and satisfies your soul. Amen? Conversely, if you come in here with an attitude, a negative attitude, negative Nancy's, right? You come in here like that, like... I've heard that song before. He's off pitch. Another brilliant sermon by Matt. Okay. How many brilliant ones can he do in a row? I've heard this before. You don't get the same thing out of it, do you? Same circumstance. It's jaded by our attitudes. I like what Winston Churchill said about attitudes. He said, it's that little thing that makes a big difference. In fact, me, a guy my size, I think I might make that my life's quote, right? Little, big. I just lost 50 bucks from one of you out there that said, if you can do one sermon without making fun of yourself on your height, I'll give you 50 bucks. I can't do it. I'm too easy. Look at me. <laughs> it's just too easy of a target. And plus, here's a secret. I like being me. <laughs> I just do. I don't, mind be, I don't take myself too serious in that regard. So sorry about that. But, you know, if some of you guys out there are like me, oftentimes we need an attitude adjustment. But we don't have the best mental perspective. And maybe you came here this evening just off a little bit, like we can all get. The world can beat us up, and we can have poor perspectives and poor mental attitudes. And I'm here today to offer you good news because I have this good book. As always, the Word of God is here to help us, and specifically the book of Philippians. We're going to take kind of a, a skim across the top of it and spend a little time in each chapter, and we're going to see that um, <laughs> the Apostle Paul there has a secret 
See, you got to remember about Philippians. It's a prison epistle, which means that it wasn't written from a lush resort town. He wasn't taking a sabbatical and getting away from it all and penning this nice letter. It was written in a dark time of Paul's life, imprisonment there in Rome. He was under house arrest. It was a very dark time. Nevertheless, it was, if you read Philippians, it's super tender, right? It's warm, and it beams with joy. Philippians is a joyful book. That's the thread that we're going to weave through four chapters. Just going to skim it. We're going to see that even in a dark time, you can have a warm and joyful experience in life if you choose to put on the right attitudes. I want to help us today see the secret of Paul's success, how he can do this. And I'm telling you, this is what it is. Paul put on the mind of Christ. That's what he did. We're going to see him put on four specific attitudes that our Lord Jesus Christ had. And you're going to see that the result is joy. Even in a dark time of imprisonment. Now, none of you guys are on, under, you got any anklets on tonight, do you? Is there anybody that bad, Alf? So if he could change, of course we can, right? We can put these attitudes on. In chapter one, we're going to see Paul do this. We're going to see Paul put on a mental perspective, a frame of mind, an attitude, if you will, of singleness. You're going to see him being single-minded in chapter one. We're going to see him laser-focused on what was really important living and proclaiming the gospel. We're going to see that. And the result is joy. Chapter two, we're going to see Paul urging us to put on that mindset or that attitude that Jesus Christ had. He says in chapter two, let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, right? And you're going to see that was a humble servant's mind. It's one of my favorite runs of scripture there in Philippians chapter two. We'll get there, but he talks about putting a servant's mind on. That's chapter two. Chapter three, we're going to see Paul urging us to put on a forward mind, a mind that doesn't look backwards, but a mind that by faith looks forward. And we're going to see the result is joy, even in a dark time. And finally, in chapter four, we'll just spend a couple of verses there, and we're going to talk about having a secure mind, not an insecure mind that's shaken easily, but a mind that's firmly routed in peace and contentment. And the result is going to be, let's hear it. Joy. So if you want to find joy, you got to put on and you got to change your attitude. Let's follow Paul as he follows Christ, his attitudes, his mindsets. Briefly, chapter one, we talked about Paul putting on a single mind. You know, he had this mental attitude that he was focused precisely on living and proclaiming the gospel. That's, that's the Apostle Paul. We're going to see that in chapter 1 here. Isn't that a great combo? Living and proclaiming the gospel. There's a lot of people out there proclaiming it. Very few living it. And if you can mesh those two together, you have something. And that's a great example, the Apostle Paul. He, he was no spiritual tumbleweed. He wasn't blowing in and out of towns without a focus. He made not only spiritual things a priority, you could say he made spiritual things the priority. Amen? And I'd ask you and I today, are spiritual things important to you? Are you prioritizing them in your life? You can answer yes because you're here. That's first step, right? 
It's the body of Christ. Feed off each other. God's spirit's here and he moves and he works and God's word's here. Yeah, but how much of that is, is are you making a priority out of spiritual things? It's important. One thing I always appreciate about my father is he's bold in this. If you run into my dad, some of you have, you know what he asks you a lot of times? How's your spiritual life doing? I see heads nodding. Some people that know my dad. Who says that? You know what we usually say? Hey, how's church? He just looks and gets right down to brass tacks straight away and says, hey, Dan, how's your spiritual life doing? Well, I guess it's been a week and I hadn't really thought about my spiritual life. Well, you ought to. It it just shouldn't be a priority. It should be the priority. Are you interested? Are you invested in the things of the Lord? That's a wonderful thing for a dad to say to his kids. A wonderful thing for a grandpa to say to his grandkids. I'm going to start saying that now. I'm going to be boy. How's your spiritual life? Not in a judgmental way. How are you doing with the Lord? Because that's really what matters, right? doesn't matter what church you go to or how's your spiritual life. I love that about my dad. Well, I'm going to tell you something about the Apostle Paul. This guy was no tumbleweed. He was focused precisely on the gospel. Let's take a look and see how it works out in verse 12 here, chapter 1. Listen to this. Paul says this, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. What happened to him? He's writing to these guys, hey, don't, hey, these things that happened to me actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. I'll tell you what happened to him. He got thrown in, in, in under house arrest. That's what happened to him. His current imprisonment was actually working to further his goal. Not him, but his goal. The gospel was furthered in his imprisonment. And I'm telling you, let me put it in vernacular that we understand in the American church. He didn't look at getting thrown in jail as a closed door. Right? You ever said that? Oh, God just closed that door. Whoa, hang hang on a second. What happened? It just got hard. I don't know. Maybe God shows the door and it gets hard, but you know what I see in my life? The doors are wide open. He didn't shut anything down. No one promised a bed of roses here. Paul's saying, yeah, I got thrown in jail. Listen, that didn't throw me off. I'm telling you right now. It didn't close any doors for the Apostle Paul. The Lord laid something on his heart there on the road to Damascus. He is the steward of the dispensation of grace, and that gospel was what he was living for and what he was preaching everywhere he went. It got him run out of every town he visited. And something like jail didn't close any doors. And I would encourage you today to be careful when we say things like that. Now, sometimes God does shut doors, obviously, when it gets hard. But be careful on making that connection, at least in this case, and in most of the cases that I read in the Bible, just because things get hard doesn't mean God's slamming doors. So just, just be careful there. That's the American version. I'm a little uncomfortable here, so God shut me down. About time to go take a mission trip, if that's the way you feel, because <laughs> there's a lot of resistance. So something to think about. How did this happen? How, is it, how did the gospel get further when he's in jail? Come on, Paul, are you serious? Well, let's check out. Verse 13 says, So that it had become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest 
that my chains are in Christ. <laughs> the Apostle Paul was a real deal, don't you think? He, he's not this pale and anemic Christian that we see today. This guy's the real deal. He's saying, here's how it worked. I see this as God's unique way of evangelism. That's what I see. Because house arrest worked this way back then. You know, they didn't have the electronic devices, those anklets, right? If you had enough money or your family or your friends had enough money, you could rent a house in Rome. They don't care. They're not going to pay for it. But they're going to say, if you can, you can, okay, there's a little place where you can live. But guess what? You're going to get an elite Roman soldier, the palace guard, the people that had influence. These are very important soldiers. These are, these are people that lived in the palace. Their families lived there alongside Caesar. These guys had influence and political power in this day and age. Well, a couple times every 24 hours, you got a new one chained to your leg. That's how they kept track of you. You don't have electronics back then. And Paul's saying this. <laughs> Are you kidding me? This is awesome. God, how, I could have never planned this as good as you just did, Lord. You're telling me I get a new guy? And when I'm done with him, you're going to give me another one. And then he's going to go back to the most influential place in Rome? Is that what you're saying to me? Perfect. And I wonder at the end of the shift what those soldiers thought. Honestly, I wonder if they thought, who's in prison? Me or him? Because I'm quite certain they heard the gospel. Amen? And I wonder. Sometimes I like putting myself in there. One of those soldiers went home. Hey, honey, you should have seen who I was chained to today, the crazy apostle Paul. But have you keep talking about this guy named Jesus? Do you remember Jesus? Remember that guy that we crucified? You, you know what he's saying about him? He said he was God Almighty, that he's divine, and that if we believe that he died and was buried and rose again and that he lives today, we all not only will live forever in eternity with him, we'll also have this quality of life, this eternal quality of life that's measured after grace, and he'll help us have that quality of life today. Amen? I wonder what they thought. It was two years. You know how many cracks? <laughs> Do you know how many times he probably cracked people? I bet you he just, and you know what? It's, it's unique. God, God ordered this. It wasn't a closed door. It was an open door. It was, God, it was God's unique way of evangelizing Rome and the palace. Amen? You, you know what I love about verse 14, the next verse, is it shows the effect of a bold, unique way of evangelism. Look, listen to it here. 14, and most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. <laughs> Did you get that? This singleness of mind had an effect on other believers. They were more bold. You hear that? Bold. And they were more confident. These people that weren't in prison, they were more bold to preach and to live the gospel. Did, did, did you catch the contagiousness of Paul and his single mind? They said something like this. If Paul can in prison, surely we can on the streets. Amen? That's what they were saying. It says this, means this. Attitudes are contagious. Perspectives, mental frame of mind, are, do you know they're contagious? The question we might want to ask ourselves tonight is, is yours, is mine worth catching, right? Sometimes, Lord, help us all because mine isn't worth catching. That's what inspires people, you see. A frame of mind in the midst of it all 
People got bold. Singleness of mind is powerful. Not being deterred, knowing your goal, having some spiritual priorities and moving forward, majoring on the majors, amen? And knowing that that's the gospel, living and proclaiming it, that's the key, the really, but the crux of having a single mind is played out in verse 20 and verse 21. Let me read them. They're wonderful verses. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So for me to live as Christ... And to die is gain. You kidding me, Paul? That's an amazing statement there. Even as Paul sits in chains, awaiting the most brutal Christian killer of all time, Caesar Nero, he says, you know, whether I live or I die, and he doesn't seem to care, I want my body, how they kill me, and how I live, to blow up Jesus Christ in this place. In contrast, I don't want to be ashamed. Quite literally, I don't want to shrink away. I want to blow Jesus up even in death or life. It doesn't matter to me just that Christ gets the glory. That's a single-minded fellow, don't you think? Driven and powered by God's Spirit. Verse 21, he says something that I don't know if anybody in here can say. There may be some. I'll be honest with you. I don't know if I can say this right now. For me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's such a bold statement. We gloss over it like it's on our refrigerators. Listen to me. Christ is the center of my existence, Paul would say. My life revolves or orbits around him. He's the center. Not my reputation. Not my ministry not my job, not worldly gain, not great things like my kids, my family, Edgewater Christian Fellowship. Those are all good things. But if my life is revolving around this, guess what? When I die, I lose. Amen? The only thing that you live for that when you die, you gain is Jesus Christ. Amen? Something to think about. What are you orbiting around What are we revolving around? It's sobering because we say things so easily. But you know what? Sometimes when you hit your head on the pillow, sometimes I have a hard time sleeping and sometimes I don't, but sometimes I push rewind. You do that? Anybody do that? You take inventory. And if you watch that video, it always has a trail back to something. And if I'm completely honest, I can go days and weeks without revolving around Jesus Christ. Am I being too real with you guys? Amen? To live is Christ. To die is gain. That's the epitome of a single-minded, focused Christian. And it's something we ought to think about. Wasn't Jesus single-minded? Think about it. His overarching mission was to come, right? And live out the redemptive purpose of his father. Amen? He did what he had to do to get on that tree so you and I could have everlasting life. So he could be the propitiation, the satisfaction, if you will. Not just for my sins, but your sins, for the world's sin. Amen? He was focused on that. You couldn't deter him when he was on this earth. Amen? Listen, we need to follow Paul in chapter 1. If we want joy in our lives, even in his time 
dark time. If we want to do that, we need to follow Paul, follow Jesus, and really be focused precisely on living and proclaiming the gospel and not be deterred from that. Amen? It's a single-mindedness. And when we do that, just re-speak the simplicity of the gospel again and again in our lives and with our tongues, we will have joy. Amen? Let's put on the, the mindset of being a focused Christian. Amen? That's chapter one. That's the first mindset Paul put on. The second mindset, he put on a servant's. He's begging us. He's imploring us to say, listen, we see it in chapter two, verse five. He says this, listen, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What mindset was that? He's going to tell us here in the next few verses, but let me tell you something right now. It was a mindset of humility, of servitude. He's going to have a run of scriptures that are, that are amazing. He's urging us, though, to be servants, to be humble, to lake the low spot, if you will. Jesus Christ is our supreme example of servitude and being humble leading to exaltation. And listen to these verses in verse six. Check it out. We're gonna see it here and it's important to put on. If you want joy, you gotta be a servant. Listen, who, verse six, Jesus, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Here's what he's saying. You know, being God or being divinity wasn't something that Jesus Christ had to grasp at. Did you know that? When Jesus was on earth, he was the God-man. That's what we call him. Perfectly divine and perfectly human all at the same time. Amen? It had to be that way, right? He's one divine person, the eternal son of God, right? God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, the eternal Son of God, that, that's his person. He never lost that, never changed that, never will, is, or never will change. He's the eternal Son of God. But what he did when he came down here to this barren land was he joined his divine nature. Off the side there, there's a human nature. He took the form of a human, right? We see this in the Gospels. We see perfectly divine and perfectly human. He vacillates back and forth. It makes the gospel so incredibly fun to read when you see this. You see the divinity of Jesus Christ throughout the gospels. You see him having perfect control over creation, right? Because he actually is the creator. You see him turning water into wine. You see him speaking the waves just to calm down, right? The raging storms. I love when he walks through a crowd and a woman grabs his garment, and he says, well, his power, power left me. You kidding me? That's a divine person. I, I don't feel anything leave me when people touch me. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that right now. It's divinity, but then you also see him choosing to live in his human nature that he took on when he became Jesus, the eternal son of God. You see it all the time. You see in the garden. Mark Scuss, I did a great talk on the garden there in Gospel of Mark on Friday morning, 6.30. Men, come. It was awesome. He relived that, our, our Lord in the garden. He said he was exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Read the passion. Read, our God felt our humanity. It makes him so sympathetic to our needs. In all ways, he was tested without sin. He cried and he wept, right? 
He experienced disappointments, was tempted in all ways yet without sin. He made himself our perfect God by really sharing our humanity. So don't ever forget, verse 6, that he's the God-man, perfectly divine and perfectly human all at the same time. Had to be that way. Think about it. When he got up on that cross, how could something divine die? Well, you have to take the form of a human. to take on a human nature so you can actually die, right? But if he wasn't divine, would that death have the infinite value that it has? Be another animal sacrifice, wouldn't it? Had to be that way. I love what Lewis Ferry Schaefer said about this topic, about the God-man. He said this. He said he was God's perfect man and man's perfect God. Amen? He touched us, vacillated in and out of there. So just remember when you look at Jesus, and it says here in verse 6, he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. It's because he is God. He's the eternal son of God. Don't forget that when you study Christology, you study who this Jesus really is. Amen? All right, enough of that. Verse 7 and 8. Let's check this out. It says, but Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being in, found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the point, even the death of the cross. Listen, Jesus chose to lay aside his glory. He hid it in the lowly Nazarene, and the king of kings became the servant of all on that day. Amen. It's a great emptying of his insignia of majesty. That's the king of kings. He robed his glory in a lowly Nazarene. And even further, becoming a human, he actually came obedient to the father and died not a king's death, but he died a criminal's death. The injustice of it all. Sometimes we ought to think about that a little bit. He made himself of no reputation. They killed him like a criminal. He did all that for you and I. Imagine that. Imagine that. In the next two verses should put a smile on every servant's heart. Everybody who chooses the low spot, you should smile right now. Because in verse 9, 10, and 11 says something so encouraging to the servant. It says that you will be exalted in his time. Listen to this. Therefore, because of all those things he did, the servitude, the humbleness, taking the low spot, he says, therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Amen? That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? The reason of great joy when we take the role of the servant is that we get exaltated. <laughs> we get exalted, sorry. Right? Christ humbling left to his exaltation. Right now, when he arose, right? When he ascended, where did he go? Where did he go? He went to the right hand of the Father. He's exalted right now. A, a, a place of power and authority and exaltation. Right hand of the Father. In the future... That's what Paul's alluding to in verse 11, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Is that now? It's not now. Read the news. 
Listen to what people are talking about our Jesus, about Christianity, talking authentic Christianity. You think every tongue's saying that right now? Mm-mm. You read Revelation chapter 19, you're going to see a future event where Jesus Christ finally in human history is going to be exalted by everybody who has any breath in his lungs and any tongue to talk. They're going to hit their knee and they're going to go, oh, that is the King of Kings and that is the Lord of Lords. And uh uh-oh, I made the wrong decisions. (laughs) Someday, he will be exalted in a way where the world is going to hit their knee, forced down to acknowledge finally his lordship and his kingship. Amen? That's in the future. Listen, we do this little drill in wrestling. It's called low man wins. It's usually in sports. That's usually what happens. So I got that going for me because I'm low already right? Low man wins. You get down and, and, and you start attacking. The lower guy, the lower center of gravity normally wins. It's a great dichotomy in scriptural, spiritually. Take the low spot. Be a humbled servant. And guess what? Don't be prideful. Go down here. Take a spot. Don't esteem yourself so high. Remember where you came and just be a servant. Put yourself under others for love's sake. Do that. And you know what'll happen? God will be with you and he'll exalt you. That's 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. See, instead of that, we take the prideful route, amen? And every guy can say yes now. Some of you ladies, but mostly guys, right? We want to say, no, this is, no. I don't belong down there. That's where you belong, you heathen. But when you choose to take the low spot, what you do is you get God working with you and providing his grace. 1 Peter 5, verse 6 says, God does what to the proud? Resist the proud. You, you want to you find friction with God? You want to not even understand where your spiritual life is? You should just start being prideful. God resists the proud, but what does he do to the humble? He gives grace to the humble. I want his grace. I'm done with the right and wrong and what I deserve sometimes. I just want your grace, Lord. He resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He will exalt you in his due time, not yours. Just put yourself under people. It's so hard to do. It's so un-American. It just is. Amen? It's so against our human nature, but it's the great dichotomy in Scripture. The low man wins. The last will be first. The humble will be exalted. That stuff is upside-down kingdom stuff. That's the stuff of Jesus. It's Jesus' way. That's what it is. It's Jesus's way. And I want to live that way. Amen. Don't you? You got to get low. You got to have a servant's heart. You got to put that on. Putting on a servant's heart and having a humble attitude will always yield to joy. That's one of the reasons Philippians is so joyful. You can't read chapter two. You just go, whoa. Oh, thank you, Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm warm now. I'm encouraged now. But he's in prison. It's because he put on a humbled heart and he wants us to follow Jesus in that endeavor. Chapter three, real quickly here. Chapter three is an awesome chapter. It's Paul encouraging us to have a forward mind, not looking back, but looking onward and upward, okay? Not behind us. He's urging us to do that. And what I've noticed about me, maybe it's the same with you, is that um, there's one thing that can wreck your spiritual life is this, it's, it's going back. 
back in the past. It's digging up skeletons. It's opening closets and looking too intently on what happened to us in the past. Whether they're good things or whether they're bad things, you look too much backwards and you're going to fall forward. I can trust you that spiritually. And that's what Paul is having us look at. He wants us to stay focused forward. Check it out in verse 15. He says this, uh, mature ones, basically, um, uh, have this mind. Have this mind. What is it? Well, you go back to verse 12. It says this, not that I have already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press onward that I may lay hold of that which Jesus Christ has laid hold of me. Paul's saying, listen, man, it's the writer of two-thirds of the New Testament. The great apostle Paul is saying, listen, I'm not matured to the point that I can't mature anymore. I haven't arrived yet. Uh, So I press on. I keep going. I look forward. I don't look backwards. I'm looking forward. And that's important, having this forward mind. It's a mindset of running forward, pursuing the prize of Christian maturity. Keep going. The goal's out there. You keep going. You, none of us have arrived at a spiritual impasse of, <laughs> we can't mature anymore, right? That's what Paul's saying. 13, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. I forget or neglect those things which are behind, and I reach forward to those things which are ahead. Verse 13, here's Paul. That's what he says. He says, listen, literally, I don't have it all figured out yet. I haven't, I haven't apprehended it. It means I don't have it all figured out yet, but this one thing I do, we must forget or neglect the things in the past and we must press forward for those things in the future. Amen? And I want to make a small caveat in that verse. It says we must forget those things in the past. And if you look at that word, it's a great word it's so one of the reasons I like studying the Bible is you, you, you find words and how they're used in different contexts, and you, you look out the Bible, how many times it's been used, and you study the, the word in the original language, and that word is not like forget, like, I don't remember that anymore. That's not the word. The word is neglect, um, to uh, starve out or pay no attention to. It doesn't mean that you will forget your past you got to let yourself off the hook. There's things that happen in our life that you will not forget. Amen? Paul didn't forget his past. I'm sure some of you are aware of who Paul is and who he was before he became the Apostle Paul, the great Christian killer, right? We forget that sometimes. This guy was a murderer of men, women, and children in the name of God. This Paul, when he was Saul. Amen? He killed people. He killed innocent women and children in the name of God. Could you imagine coming to the Lord after doing that? Do you think he forgot that? You think like, well, you know what? That was the past. This is the forward. Shake it off. That's not what this verse means. Better rendered neglect. Paul didn't forget. In 1 Corinthians, he says this. He says, listen, I'm the least of the apostles. Because I persecuted the church. I killed people in the name of God. I am the least of these 12 people. It gets worse, though. In Ephesians, he says this. I'm the least of the saints. All you guys that are saved, I'm way down here because of my past. And then finally, some of the last words he penned in the Bible. 
to his protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy, he says this, <laughs> I'm the chief of sinners. And that's an honest man who helps us define what forgetting means. Listen, we study history for a reason. History ain't in the future. History's in the past. We study it so we don't make the same mistakes, but we don't feed history. We don't feed our past. We forget or neglect that, and we look forward to what God has for us in this thing we call tomorrow. Amen? We don't forget. Paul didn't forget. We don't forget things like divorce, infidelity, what that does to someone, the betrayal, the abandonment, the rejection. You don't forget watching a loved one die. You just don't. Trust me. You just don't. You don't forget those wrecks you've made by yourself or from someone else. You just don't forget those things. But we can choose to neglect them, to starve them out and stop feeding that monster that is controlling your spiritual life. That's what he's urging us to do by having a forward mind. It's like this. It's glance if you may so you don't repeat that error, but keep your mind forward. You keep it going. You press on to what God has put on your heart and you look back every once in a while so you don't do what you did there to your kids. You don't do what you did there to your ex-husband or your ex-wife, right? You don't look back and stop and get screeched. You move forward. You glance, if you may, to learn your lesson and you move forward. That's the idea about neglect versus forget. The fundamental problem of looking backwards as a Christian is this. You can't live by faith when you look backwards. That's the fundamental problem with it. Remember our definition of faith? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things you can't see. It's out there, something you're hoping for. It's out there in this thing we call tomorrow. We've got to use our faith, our spiritual eyes. And to do that, you've you got to be looking forward. It has to do with the future. You don't hope for things you have already have. We look forward. In the same chapter, the writer of Hebrews in 11.6 says this. It's a sobering verse. It says that it's impossible to please God without faith. That's the fundamental problem of looking too hard back there and getting slammed face forward. Amen? So let's do that. Let's put a forward-looking mind on and look forward, neglect what's there. You know, it's a small point, but we have to also not look back at too much of the good times. It's good to reminisce. Do you ever know that guy that just, man, the good old days where I was a state champ. Remember Uncle Rico in uh, that movie? What was that movie? Yeah, Uncle Rico. I could have won state. It's like everything was always better back then. That makes me grumpy when I think about that. Do you know that sometimes? Oh, it used to be so cool here in Southern Oregon. Now it's not. And man, you should have seen me when I was younger. <laughs> you know those people? It works both ways. You can't look too intently at your past either because you ain't what you used to be. Let me just remind you of that. I was reminded of that recently. I'm in my exam room. I'm coming in there, bebopping in there, seeing a lot of people, a lot of patients that day. And I walk in there and I see this young lady. She's sitting in the exam chair. She's probably in her teens. I look at her and I go, and I look over at her mom. I go, man, I can't believe this is your daughter. I remember seeing you when you were 15. Now I'm seeing your daughter. Am I that old? And I am. I've been doing it long enough now, about 20 years. 
A lot of people are going, yep, yeah, it happens to me all the time in the classroom or wherever. Yeah, it's, she's 30-something and her kid's 15 or 16. It makes sense, right? So I'm looking at this beautiful young lady and I'm like, man, I remember when you were in that chair. And the lady, uh, she, the mom, she goes, oh, yes, Dr. Vidlak, I remember you. I had such a crush on you. <laughs> I'm like, well, you know, shucks. And as I'm feeling really good about what I used to be like, I looked over at, and I caught, I met eyes with this, the 15-year-old. She looked me up and down and said, you, mom. (laughs) I'm right here. I'm right here. I'm like, come on, are you serious? It was harsh. Right? We aren't what we used to be. So let's just move on. Right? As we neglect our past, we choose to starve it out, learn what we need to from it, and move forward, upward and onward. Joy will be exuding out of our lives. We don't have to be defined from our past. God is the God of tomorrow. He's the God of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Let's focus on that. Amen? Hey, the last chapter here, chapter four, real quickly, the last mindset or attitude Paul put on in chapter four is a secure mind. And I'm gonna tell you something right now. We need to have a secure mind. Sometimes we get these attitudes of insecurity. Some people more than others. I found that if you get to talk to people, there's a lot of insecure people. There's a lot of insecure Christians and having a secure mind involves peace and contentment, but it really is being confident in who you are in Christ, not in all your surface insecurities. And this is a huge one for me in chapter four because, you know, sometimes I feel like I am not a marital counselor. You can ask my wife. She knows that for sure. But <laughs> we put so much pressure on one another because we're insecure, you know, I, my wife learned right away, look, I'm going to do my best, and I'm going to be the best man I can, but I'm going to fail. And I'm gonna, don't put so much pressure on me to meet every single one of your needs. Our insecurities, we put so much pressure on one another, brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, bosses and employees. Hey, hey, listen, I know who I am in Christ, and I hope God's in front of me. And when that works out, guess what? You're free to appreciate the best of every person. It starts with being secure, though, and confident in who you are in Christ. Then you're, you don't have to meet every one of their needs. You can together look to God. And I'm broken. I'm a knucklehead. How many times do I have to show you that before you get that, woman? <laughs> right? Don't put so much pressure on each other. We need to have a secure mind. And Paul was... So he had so much humble swagger about himself, I see. He, he's just so secure in, in chapter four. He, he's, he's putting on, he's reminding us you need to put on security. And, and security involves peace and contentment. You see it in chapter four. Look at verse uh, six and seven of chapter four. It says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Did anybody catch the divine exchange there? Did anybody? There's a divine exchange that takes place. (laughs) 
You may, you may see it. Be anxious. So, okay, so in nothing. So let's, say, let's put it this way. All your junk, all the things you're worried about, all the things you have anxiety about, the things that stress you out, financially, relationally, all the things, all that stuff, you know, your kids, your grandkids, are they living for the Lord? And you start to work yourself up. He says, all that stuff, all of that, you can exchange that for the peace that will quite literally blow your mind that you, you cannot wrap your mind around. It surpasses anything that you can reconcile in your brain. Does that sound like a good exchange to you? Right? Amen. You take all that junk and you cast it at the one the apostle Peter says, cast it to me because I care for you. When you do that, when you take that and you throw it at him, at his feet, say, Lord, with prayer, by supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. When you do that, Lord, I'm asking you, could you help my son? I'm asking you, could you help this relationship? Lord, man, these finances don't look good. You take all that junk, you just keep putting them at the feet. You keep recasting them at him. You keep loading your line and you cast it back at him. A wonderful divine exchange happens. The peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds, which means that you won't have a ruffled head. You won't be unorganized and anxious and unable to sleep. You'll have this mind that's enabled to... Um, Confront any circumstance without fear. That's peace, an eerie feeling. Who's been there? It's a wonderful thing. I hope you've experienced the peace that surpasses all understanding. I've seen Christians do it, and I'm telling you, having a secure mind and having a book end of peace is inspiring to me. You look at situations in Christian, there's no way. I couldn't do that. Well, yeah, you could. God put it on their plate, and you talk to them. You're like, how do you do that? He goes, man, I don't know. I shouldn't be okay, but I'm strangely okay right now. Have you heard that? Have you heard that? Things are, look, I should be freaking out right now, but I just have this eerie sense that I'm not scared anymore. I let it go. I'm not afraid anymore. I'll let, I gave it to God. It's floating in the arms of God. That's a quote from my wife. When she went through some hard times, she had to let something go and she just let it go. She said, I'm okay. I'm f you shouldn't be okay. I'm not okay. You shouldn't be okay. She, I'm okay. I'm floating in the arms of God, you see. That's the peace that surpasses all understanding. It's part of having a secure mind. You gotta have peace. So by prayer and supplication, thanksgiving, your, let your requests be known to God and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and our mind. It starts with peace. The other bookend I want to just touch on here is contentment. Verses 11 and 12. And we'll finish here. Now that I, it says verse 11 in, ver, in chapter four, not that I speak in regards to need for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer. Did anybody else catch the fact that contentment is learned? Just three times in those two verses said, I have learned, I have learned, I have learned that in the ups and the downs and in the in-betweens, I have learned to be content. Here, 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 here's the truth about contentment is it's learned. You don't just get it. 
you learn how to be content as a Christian. Do you know that? We learn when we continually, in all circumstances, the ups and the downs and the in-betweens, we trust God. And guess what we find at the end of that trust? We find someone who is sufficient, someone who we are satisfied in. Amen? Right? We found out he's faithful. You know what? He doesn't need to change my circumstances because he was enough. His grace was sufficient even in my time of need. He was made strong in my weakness. That's contentment is you start living life and you get whacked and you you get whacked. And and if you're a Christian, you place your trust in the Lord in those circumstances, you learn that he is an almighty God who is faithful and he will get you through it. And you learn that as a Christian step by step by step. And you turn around and go, you know what? My contentment does not rest in my circumstances. It rests in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he doesn't change like my circumstances do. That's contentment. Amen? Part of a secure mind is having peace and contentment. We can hold the line a little bit here. Joy will be exuded out of your life, even in the dark times. Amen? Listen, if we take this secure mind and we consider putting on Jesus Christ a forward mind, not looking backward, And we also add to that maybe an attitude of servitude and humility, like in chapter two. And then even if we move to chapter, back to chapter one and we go, I need to get focused. Man, are spiritual things important to me? Have I shared the gospel? Am I living the gospel? We add to it a single-minded. Here's what I think will really happen to us all. If we legitimately do that in our souls, in our minds, I think we will say, like Paul says, In chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So that's your attitude adjustment this week. It's a challenge to all of us. I pray that we look to God's word. Read Philippians. It'll probably probably take you 10 minutes to read that thing a couple times, and you'll start getting this feeling of warmth and joy in those different mindsets. Amen? Amen. Father, we're uh, so grateful for uh, your people that you brought here today. Um, we're grateful for your word, I, your perfect word. I pray that it have it, its perfect way in us as we leave. So be with us and be glorified in our lives as we go about serving you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, guys. God bless you.